Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. All right, welcome to Notes from the Field. I am your host, Will Boyd, here with Dr. Gordon Wilson. This is the show where we get out into the field. It could be a literal field or an entire field of study. From grasshoppers to galaxies, the creative universe is our study site. Our goal to present a creational approach for engaging with nature and to talk about the processes and phenomena that are manifested in the creation we've been blessed to have dominion over. Well, it's good to be here. Yeah, it really is. I'm excited to be in this little black booth with you here, Gordon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Today, we're going to consider what happens when what we think of as wild animals become tame. Kind of a leading statement there. Uh, But before we get going, maybe it'd be fun to introduce ourselves a little bit. Sure. I'm Gordon Wilson, and my day job is to teach biology. I, my title is nat, uh, Senior Fellow of Natural History at New St. Andrews College, and I teach a variety of biology classes there. But on the side, I am getting into this new area for me, and that is being the narrator for the Riot in the Dance series. So, Lord willing, we'll continue to produce episodes of Riot in the Dance. We've done Riot in the Dance Earth and Riot in the Dance Water. But um, time for outer space, right? And dance sp- or air, at least. Yeah. Well, we'll hopefully <laughs> keep going. Right against Mars. <laughs> right. Right. So that's uh, what I do on the side. And I enjoy writing uh, articles for Answers Magazine, as well as some of their online content, a little bit of Answers in Depth. And that's a, that's a good writing outlet for me. And I've written a textbook, Riot in the Dance which actually that came first before the, the uh, documentaries. And I wrote a book just recently uh, called A Different Shade of Green, which is a uh, biblical approach to environmentalism and the dominion mandate. So that's a quick introduction. Awesome. Myself. Well, it's good to be here with you, Gordon. We've, uh, we've had conversations like this off the record a lot yeah. over the years, and I'm sure our We'll share more about what we've been up to together in the field, out in the field as the show uh, progresses. Um, I am a a high school and middle school science teacher, uh, mostly online these days, but I've taught ages four up through ages uh, 24, uh, from things like educational robotics to uh, leading some uh, graduate level classes in natural resource management, and currently teach high school biology and marine biology. Uh, as well as physical science for junior hires at an online school and then also a brick-and-mortar school here where we live, uh, Logos School, and um, just enjoy getting out in creation with my family. I love watching birds in particular and uh, doing a lot more uh, writing recently, writing and curriculum development with Canon and also just some blogging. Great. Yeah. So it's fun to, you know, we get paid to talk a lot. Yeah, and we start liking hearing. I, I actually, I was told by my mom early on that I like to hear myself talk. So maybe that was <laughs> writing on the wall for becoming a teacher. Uh, but today we're exploring an interesting topic, talking about this maybe, maybe recent, maybe increasing phenomenon of wild animals 
uh, that are being seen in larger numbers in major urban areas. Mm -hmm. And so maybe just to, to lob the biggest general question out there to you. Is this a relatively uh, new phenomenon and or or maybe even more importantly, why is this happening? Why are we seeing this happen? Well, it's been happening. Um, some of the wild animals have been living with us so long that we take it for granted. We don't even realize it. Sparrows, for example, have taken up for as long as I can remember. I'm sure going all the way back to the Middle Ages, sparrows have been picking up the crumbs off of uh, off the streets or uh, dirt paths um, for right. centuries in urban areas. And uh, squirrels have been with us for a real long time. Robins and other things that we just take for granted. But now we're seeing more of exotic, uh, larger animals. Yeah, that tends to uh, capture our attention. Yeah, that, that definitely when a bear moseys through town or a moose, if it's a small, well, if it's a big town or a small town, usually a big animal will wind up in the paper. You know, moose walks through downtown uh, Moscow or a cougar has uh, been sighted on the, uh, on the edges of town. I've seen coyotes walking down 3rd Street in the middle of the night. You know, I was driving home from the airport uh, late, late at night and no cars were on the street. And I saw a coyote, you know, moseying down. The middle of Third Street, next wow. to next to Tri-State. That's not odd. Was that the most surprising occurrence of seeing a quote-unquote wild animal in an unexpected place for you personally? Oh, uh, I remember a long, long time ago. Um, there was a bear up in Fort Russell district in somebody's backyard, but I didn't get to see it. But some friends got to see it. Yeah, the coyote was probably. Yeah, that that wasn't that's a spectacular, really, but no, it's still pretty neat seeing a coyote in the backdrop of a neighborhood. Well, it was down to it was not downtown, but tri-state area. Oh wow, right by right by stores. Yeah, so that's not too unusual. But when you see it just recently, a cougar on the outskirts of Moscow, and so that definitely gets people's attention. And the big question is why. And um, my guess uh, is that. They're opportunists, you know, they're saying, okay, I can exert myself out in the wilds and stalk game that is hard to get. And I have to put in a lot of work because these animals are very adapted to being hunted. Right. Whereas a house cat that's accustomed to easy living uh, isn't always on the lookout for a big predator ready to, you know. Yeah, no, so true. Predators, kind of the un unspoken life of predators is that their batting average is terrible. Right. They strike out most <clears throat> of the and time. They might increase their batting average by coming into a place where various pets or even wild animals might be in higher densities, uh, or the pets are just unaccustomed to being stalked. And so it might be easy pickings. Or I haven't done a study on it, but there's competition out there, there's territories out there, and they're seeking new territory that's unoccupied. And they got booted out, or they got shoved out of the rural area, and they just couldn't cut it out there because of others' bigger, stronger territories. So maybe the, the weaker, I, I'm just throwing that out. I'm not dogmatically saying the weaker, yeah. saying, hey, 
I can't cut a, a niche out for myself out in the wilds. So I'll go where there isn't some bigger, better coyote or, or cougar yeah. that's competing with me. Right. And I'm just looking for a place to eke out a living. Right. And, um, and then they get accustomed to the city life. They learn how to either temporarily invade or they, um, you know, they live out there, but then they come in for shopping, you know. So before we offend all the urbanites out there, could it be that they are something about them make them more intelligent? Something about their, the genetics they bring to the table that enables certain, and these are kind of mid-level predators, I think we're mostly talking mm-hmm. about, coyotes and foxes and, and then these fishing cats yeah. down in the tropics. Um, what, what characteristics uh, that we might define of as intelligence do you think right. allow one of these creatures to survive better? Well, that's what they're doing now is starting to research, you know, it's pretty subjective, but trying to figure out, you know, with rigorous science, are these urban animals a little bit more savvy because they have to deal with um, problem solving of getting through man-made objects and traffic and whereas maybe the nature, nature's a little more predictable. And where the hustle and bustle of urban life is a little less predictable and they need to be more mentally agile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are all, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are studying these urban animals that have a much better feel for the intelligence level. Whether it's intelligence that is naturally, you know, naturally selected or if it's actually induced by the environment they're put in. Right. If you put a, a kid into a rigorous school, they're going to improve. Sink or swim. <laughs> yeah, they're going to improve. And maybe the urban setting is just a more rigorous school. Oh, I love that analogy. For, for this, this animal, it has to just be working his brain a little bit more than just following his instincts. Uh, out in the wilds. Right. Some of these stories about the predators that live are able to adapt and live in urban areas, I've just been blown away. For example, the now well-studied coyote population in Chicago, mm-hmm. which is estimated to be between three and 4,000 wow. individuals in the yeah. city limits. Yeah. Yeah. And these are ones that are living there, not just, right. not just coming in for shopping. Yeah. They're permanent residents. That's incredible. Yeah. It brings up questions. I don't know which uh, tangent you want to go down, but uh, a lot of people might be thinking, well, these are mid-level predators. Do I need to be worried? You know, do we just enjoy the the exotic opportunity to see a wild animal or should we be concerned? Right. Yeah. We get we got to watch the planet. I think it's Planet Earth number two cities episode. Oh, yeah. That was really phenomenal. Camera work. Amazing. Uh, Following the those, Langers. The Langers. Oh, they're so fun the to watch. Building, uh, on the tops of houses. And that was just amazing. Some studies have, or stories and, and kind of initial studies have suggested that there's a similarity here between uh, what's happening to these animals and what may have happened to allow us to domesticate certain animals. Are those two different things? Uh, could this eventually lead to a domesticated, quote-unquote, coyote 
that's uh, living in the doghouse out back. What do, what do you think? Yeah, I suppose it could go that way, but I don't think necessarily that these animals that are coming in are tame. They're different and they have to learn a difference, gain certain skill sets, or they might have a, already a, a better potential uh, to, you know, learn the ropes in an urban setting. But you can have a, a very wild animal. I mean, squirrels, I, you can. Some people really work at getting squirrels to eat out of their hand. But naturally, even an urban squirrel is just not going to come up to you any more than a woodland squirrel is. They're going to run away. Birds in the city fly away from you. So they may be a little bit more accustomed to human presence. And so that is sort of the first step to um, maybe working towards domestication. I think the first dogs, they were maybe picking up scraps outside, you know, human societies. And then uh, maybe an adult was killed and puppies were taken and brought up in the home. And so that was the first step in domestication. But I don't think just a bunch of city foxes are going to start wagging their tail. I might be wrong. <laughs> um, no, I don't think so either. I think they usually have to be bred uh, f for a while before those types of attributes start forming. And they do. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently there was a 20th century Russian fox experiment mm -hmm. uh, where uh, this experiment, they intentionally uh, crossed foxes that were less aggressive mm -hmm. and were eventually able to achieve some moderate level of, of domestication yeah. in foxes. Um, I remember chatting with my sister years ago and she was in college and she said that a roommate or a friend of hers had a silver fox as a pet in their dorm room. Wow. Um, and I'd never really heard of a silver fox, uh, but apparently you can, you can pay lots of money to get these silver foxes. And, and they've been sort of bred that way? Well, apparently they are descendants uh, from that initial Russian fox domestication project. Okay. Wow. And so really expensive animals. You can't keep them like you keep a cat or a dog. You have to have space to roam, apparently. This, this college student wasn't making the best call, probably, right. by having one stashed in the dorm room. Right. <laughs> That's for sure. And, uh, you know, something you mentioned earlier was interesting to me. Our perception of what equals a wild animal, uh, we get accustomed to seeing lots of these creatures. There's a family of skunks that they make themselves known every spring or early summer in our backyard. Mm -hmm. And um, we had some neighbors come over the other, the other day, introduce themselves, and they, they came over together and introduced themselves. And I was kind of worried that we'd done something horrendous to their yard when the kids were playing in the back. And then finally, they got to the point and they wanted to just let us know that the skunks were on the prowl. And apparently they're breeding back there somewhere at the corner of the yard. Wow. Um, and so that's a little more exotic. Not, yeah. uh, not too terribly, not like a langur monkey. Oh, yeah. Although in India, the langurs may be thought of as like squirrels, you know, to us. You know, in Lynchburg, I remember when we lived there, um, so I can't remember who, but they said their, their cat food dish, the cat was eating out of one, you know how they're often a pair of dishes hooked together, and there was a skunk eating out of one, and the, the house cat was eating out of the other at the same time. I mean, wow. they were just like, neither one was provoking the other. 
Um, <laughs> so maybe there's something innate in an animal that is quote unquote tameable. Mm-hmm. I've heard of people uh, having skunks as pets. Really? And removing, and sometimes removing scent glands, sometimes not. I wonder if there's a connection there to, maybe not to kinds, because we know that right. foxes and coyotes aren't necessarily domesticatable, but, or maybe it's just an incredibly long process. It might be a long process. And I'm wondering, for example, it would really be amazing to have a, I don't think anyone's trying to domesticate a cougar. Right. But that would be something to, I don't know if, if that would be acceptable. <laughs> it's like, you know, we, we have dogs that have turned on people, you know, and we've apparently learned to live with, you know, oh, the, my, my German shepherd lashed out and that was totally, un, you know, expected. But what do the statistics have to be as far as having something go south on a domesticated what we normally think of as a wild animal. Right. And, uh, you know, some people have pet wolves. Is the leash law stronger? No, it's funny. We, our culture kind of dictates what animals are acceptable as pets. If someone was walking down the street, you know, with a nice little beautiful leash and a cougar on the end of it, <laughs> you know, that would have been, it's like, whoa. I have not seen that. I have not seen that. Although either. when I went up as a kid, I went up to Bonner's Ferry and uh, with a f- uh, older gentleman who took me up there for weekend trip. And I don't know if they're in existence anymore, but it was the Kramer's Game Farm, which was sort of a regional zoo-like area. They had bear and some cougars. And, but he was friends with the people and we were invited in and uh, Mrs. Kramer had a a baby cougar running around the house. And uh, as a guest, you know, she said, would you, I was in junior high and she said, would you like to nurse the cougar? And I said, (laughs) would I? Wow. Uh, She went to the fridge and pulled out a bottle of milk. And uh, I sat down on the couch with this bottle and the baby cougar, which was, I don't know, pretty good size cougar was in that spotted. It wasn't a newborn. It was... It was a good size. It was definitely twice as tall as a house cat and uh, or thereabouts. And uh, I sat down on the couch and that cougar just went after me like, oh boy, milk. And as soon as I sat down, he rolled over. He just jumped on my lap and rolled over on his back. And I stuffed the bottle in his face and he started sucking it down. And he was, you know how baby kittens will pump their mom? You know, the yeah. paws will go back yeah, and forth. Yeah, baby humans will do that. Oh, yeah. Pump their mom. Yeah. Well, my face wound up being the, the pumping mechanism. Pumping mechanism. <laughs> so I had the bottle in its mouth and uh, these big, huge cougar paws were, were massaging both cheeks <laughs> of my face. Uh, and that was just a, a very memorable experience. So that's why I think, well, it'd be really cool to have a cougar. Of course, I would not want anything to go south. Yeah, on that's that. a that's an epic note from the field right there. Fantastic. Getting to nurse a so how, do you know how old it was? Oh, I don't. Yeah. Um, but it was That's a big animal. Its paws were huge. You know, it was out sort of the paws were you know how kids sometimes have to grow into their body parts. Uh this cougar had to grow into his paws. <laughs> <laughs> you could attest to that personally. Your cheeks. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. I remember um, in talking about how, depending on where you live, uh, an animal may appear more or less exotic to us. And of course, Mm -hmm. where we live, of course, anything in the tropics 
we think of as exotic right. that we kind of use it synonymously uh exotic in the tropics um i remember uh when i was uh studying abroad in australia in college the aussies that i went to college with they wanted to see squirrels wow. they just wanted to see squirrels so badly they thought it was the most amazing <laughs> idea yeah. that there are squirrels in trees in cities yeah. meanwhile laura keats are eating at our windowsill and, and these that, gigantic ho hum to them ho hum cockatoos are flying around yeah you know you see you, kangaroos are roadkill um, but they really right. wanted to see squirrels right i would just love to see a kangaroo that would be the most fantastic other than in a picture right um and that's that pulls me back to what i like to talk on is the magnificence of the mundane we get sort of uh, numb to what we see often and if we think about it, there's just so many fantastical traits on some of the things that we see every day, but we just go, well, that's a, that's a robin. Well, whoop-de-doo. Yeah. That's a squirrel. You know, if Guilty. you actually probe into, we, we somehow seem to need to have some exotic animal to um, trigger that, that fascination and curiosity. Um, but we would find that there's all sorts of cool things uh, about the animals right around us, but yeah. we're just too bored with them to care. Oh, so true. But so, I don't know if we're getting off topic. No, there, I think but. we're staying on topic. <laughs> and we're, and we'll, we want to leave with kind of a, the takeaway. This is, a, this is your charge. This is something you can go and do. If this show interested you, then, hey, here's something you can look into or do on your own. And so, uh, no, I think that's totally pertinent. I remember... Uh, and, and this is especially so the smaller you get, as long as you're willing to concede that a small creature could in every way be as beautiful and fascinating as a large creature, then summertime in the backyard. Oh, yeah. It's just a wonderland. It is a wonderland. We need to get new eyes. I mean, there's all sorts of technology that enhances our exploration. You know, I'm a big fan of stereo microscopes, which you can get at a really good this is not a commercial, but you can get really good stereoscopes at a reasonable price from Amscope and uh, see things that aren't very visible to yeah. the naked eye, but you put it under a scope and you see all sorts of wonderful things. But we have to get past the mundaneness of it. And uh, we even like a, a feather, you know, looking under under a microscope at the ultrastructure of a feather is just fantastic. All sorts of things you can enhance that curiosity with, the, the scopes, stereoscopes, and, and also just realizing that this is God's handiwork. Because we think this animal did not have to think about building its own body, it just happened naturally. We somehow think, oh, it just happens, therefore... It's not, it must not be that complicated. But these animals, even the most mundane creature, is vastly more complex than your best iPhone, you know, by orders of magnitude. And so we need to really take that in, and that might heighten our appreciation for it. The other thing, you know, and some people might think, well, these wild animals coming in, the dangers that, that it poses, I think we should be careful. I, I don't think we should overreact and go, oh, we can't have this. You know, let's build a wall around our city. And I think it's interesting for that 
phenomena that happen. Uh, but we have to take precautions, you know, especially if it's a big creature. Yeah. I remember my time in the Arctic, uh, these little uh, little villages on the coast there um, see polar bears regularly. And if a polar bear is seen in town, uh, it's a big deal. You close right. your house, you lock your door, you don't right. leave food around. Um, right. and, it, and in this one town, it wasn't Barrow, it was further to the east. Um, uh, someone had actually been leaving food out and watching and actually doing it so they could see the polar bear. Uh, and he ended up good. being lunch. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so you're, you, we, these are amazing phenomena, but we, we, we don't have check to be our, prudent. We, yeah. We don't check our wisdom at the door. Right. Yeah. You have to you know, take all the precautions. And sometimes an animal might need to be removed and I have no trouble with having uh, certain wild animals be removed if they pose a clear and present danger, as yeah. they say. But at the same time, we don't want to overreact and banish this thing. As we seek to have our cities become garden cities, the more lush and verdant our cities become, the more inviting they will be to not just our domesticated animals where they can thrive, but where we start making green space that allows wild animals to carve out a niche. And I don't think, again, with precautions, I don't think that's a, a bad thing, but we have to be prudent in our moves in that direction. Yeah, no, I think it just gives us more opportunity for study. That's one of the things that I hope to uh, pass on to listeners out there as well, is that the creation is so incredibly complex, complex, multi-layered, multi-layered at every scale that um, we just need to make sure we prime our curiosity, prime those kids' curiosity because there's an endless supply of research material. And uh, what a gift in a sense that uh, some of these creatures are kind of coming to us. And one of the interesting things I took away from one of these stories, I think it was regarding the, uh, the fishing cats uh, in Sri Lanka's, mm -hmm. is that the capital, Colombo yeah, there? Colombo, yeah. Yeah, the, the, they're now becoming a group of urban wildlife biologists who are really seeking to try to study these creatures, which present different types of challenges than studying wild creatures up in the hills. Yeah, yeah. You got to do, you got to be more, it's like guerrilla warfare, you know? It's just a right. different, different habitat entirely. Yeah. And so what's, uh, what's something that a mom or a, or a son can do um, to, to overcome that obstacle of seeing the magnificent as mundane? Well, um, I would recommend uh, getting a field guide. When you know what it is, or, or given the tools to find out what it is, binoculars, you know, those are sort of a must with birds. So, and birds are something that are a regular it's not this new thing coming into town. It's regular. To get over that, that hump of saying, oh, this is a boring, mundane creature. First thing to get over that hump is to look at it through the binoculars and try to identify and see what are the distinguishing characteristics that set it apart from another little brown job, LBJs, these sort of this small little brown birds that... Take work to identify. Yeah, take work to identify. Yeah. And it's it's great to start honing your observational skills so that you can distinguish between these, you know, things that are birds. I, I like to do that with plants. A lot of people don't know the difference plants. You know, they just like, it's green shrubbery. So, you need to start looking at 
you know, the intricacies and the nuances of leaf shape or feather shape or feather coloration and look in the field guide and if the field guide will tell you this is a key characteristic look for this and this little tiny nuance separates from this bird and when you start seeing those subtle distinctions and you go mom you know that's a house sparrow versus that's a chipping sparrow versus something else it gets you over that first hump of yeah. who cares it's, a sense, it's just sense a little of accomplishment it's, yeah, it's a it's sense exciting. of accomplishment and you, the more you then read up, sometimes you don't see the stuff, but you, once you've identified it, then you can actually look at information about it and you go, oh, did you know that this thing that we just identified does this and this is what it eats and this is what it, where it lives. And, and then you start, what, what is it, what kind of bird feeder should we get for that kind of bird? And it starts you down a path of nature appreciation. You don't want to force it. You just want to yeah, provide a trail of, uh, what do you call those, uh, food trail, um, to try to uh, lead, lead your children on a f- kind of a curiosity trail. A voyage of discovery. Yeah, a voyage yeah, to an exploration. And rather than saying, you must learn this, it's more like, well, what do you see? And it's not, you know, it's not everybody, but a huge percentage of people can be if it's done in a not a heavy-handed way, a, a lot of people, I think, a huge percentage of people can be taught to have a, a deep appreciation for nature. It may be different things, like I'm a big reptile and amphibian fan, you're a big bird fan, you know, we appreciate each other's... Um, Birds are better. Yeah, right. Well, we'll <laughs> duke that out later. But um, God made us with all sorts of different proclivities. Some people like wildflowers. Some people like just domesticated flowers. Some people like birds. Some people like reptiles. Some pe- you know, everybody's got their druthers. Go with your druthers and, and feed that. And, um, and it just is a good lifelong road to discovery and um it really fosters a deeper appreciation of god's creation and that's what i want to do in the riot and the dance and teaching biology is just to foster that deep appreciation so you can do that with wild animals that come in to town there you go creation is a big open book to be studied and explored thanks for joining us everybody yeah we'll see you next time you bet 